You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast, where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. This is episode 21, and we're your hosts, Brandon and Daniela. Hello. What's up? Not much. I figured this week we could talk about coffee. No, not we're not going to talk about coffee. We <laughs> talked about coffee last week. I figured we could talk about another C word, cheese. Oh, cheese. Great. I like cheese. Yes, cheese is cheese is good. We'll talk about a little bit of the basics of cheese. I, I've, you know, kind of avoided the subject because, well, I'm not necessarily perfect at making cheese. That's okay. I don't think our audience expects us to be perfect. No, we're we're enthusiastic about cheese, though. That's very well. You more so than me, but yes, I like eating cheese. Yes. So, what are you going to share with us today regarding cheese? Um, what we're going to talk about is cheese and cheese making. And the process of doing so. Sounds but, fun. But before we get into that, I uh, I thought we, I just mentioned real quick that uh, NPR did, a, I, I wasn't aware of it when we put up our podcast, but they did a whole entire week of coffee week. Sweet. Coffee so is good. So to follow up along with last week's coffee stuff, I mean, they, they, they did, and since you're listening to a podcast and if you wanted to dive a little bit deeper into the world of coffee... Then they did uh, shows, just some of them were just brief segments on the rise of women in coffee, Japanese latte art, Jerry Seinfeld talks about coffee, exploring coffee's past, why caffeine is a coffee is a miracle drug, how coffee influenced the course of history, and a few others. They just did a whole week of... So those are all the different in. topics that they discussed? Yeah. And there was also, I had, I had posted on on the Twitters and, and Facebook and different such of of a Google Hangout that a couple of the uh, NPR hosts did with some of the people in the industry uh, talking about coffee. So that's another thing to look at. I'll, I'll try to remember to put that one in the show notes too, so but what would you will find it on that, that link. No Google hangout. Yeah. What would you really? do with that? I'm not familiar with Google plus. Really? I'm, I'm not really. It's Google hangout is a way that up to people. It's like Skype in a lot of ways, video chat. But then there is also the way to do a live Google Hangout so that other people can view it. So right now, if I were to go into it, would I be able to You would to be watching view... the recording of the okay, previous so I, the so thing I'd that happened a week and a half, two weeks ago. So I'd be able to see the back and forth conversations? You would see the conversation that was had. And okay. it would switch to whoever's talking on the screen. You've got to catch up with your technology. I know. I'm a little behind. But yes, that's, that's what I mean when it's a, a, a previously recorded Google Hangout. In, in that regard, it was, it was good. It was like, that's a 30 minute talk about just different parts of coffee. None of them really having to do with fermentation. So they're beyond the scope of this podcast, but Hey, if you got interested in coffee and wanted more specifics or more general overview of coffee, then definitely check some of those things out. Yeah. Something a little more ba- basic, maybe. Hey, fermentation is intense when it comes to coffee. You know, you got to <laughs> really get so in there. so are you. I just really enjoy looking at the looking at the the facts and, and the everything about it. And that's kind of what it is with, with cheese too. The, the, you could just, just spend all day, every day learning new things about cheese. There's so much to learn. Well, cheese is everywhere. Cheese is everywhere. The, the process of doing it is relatively similar in a lot of ways with all different kinds of cheeses, but it's different enough that there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to learn with cheese making. It's way different than vegetables or yogurts or, you know, even some grain ferments or different things. I mean, there's just, there's a lot of steps. There's a lot to, that can go wrong potentially. Most of it not deadly, but you a lot know. of time too. Yeah. It, cheese making is a commitment. It Another is. Another C word. And I always think of the kind of, you know, if I ever wanted to make a, a cheese that should be aged for a few years, it's like it would be terrible if that was aging and I found out it wasn't good. Like that would just not be good. Yeah. Now there's certain things that you can do along that process. I haven't aged anything for that long. So yeah. And, and it's given all the steps that are involved in cheese making and all the milk that's involved in making a decent size Pretty wheel much of cheese. Have your own cow. <laughs> well, that's that's one way to do it, and and then maybe it wouldn't be so bad, but uh, or feel as is wasteful because there'd be a lot of milk coming in if you had your own cow. But I, it's just it's it's different than say making miso 
I guess that 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 takes a decent amount of effort, if, especially if you're going to be, you know, making Koji and, and doing everything involved in that. But there's still, I feel like fewer steps. Someone others might disagree with to me. miso or to cheese making to cheese making than miso. I mean, so it's it's one of those things that's it's very involved. It's simple. But you live but in takes, Wisconsin, so you think you'd be more into it. I am into it. I am into cheese making. I like cheese making. It's just it's tough. Why is it's it tough? It's easy, but it's 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 really not tough. It's easy to make cheese. It's surprisingly easy how easy it is to make some cheeses. And that's the exciting thing about it. Especially any of the beginner cheeses or or, or intermediate cheeses. I, think I don't know. The way I view cheese making, not that I've ever made cheese, but um just from watching you um and your experiences with cheese making, I think it probably to me at least, it sounded more complicated initially, not knowing anything that is involved in making cheese. It's just one of those things like, oh, cheese takes time and even though I, I as a child remember seeing my grandma making cheese, I never really it was just one of those things that required too many things and it sounded complicated. But then I think once a person was to look into it a little bit more, just kind of look into the basics of cheese making as kind of like what, what what's really required to make that cheese, I don't think it's so bad. Um, and at this point, I would probably attempt to make some cheese myself. Um, I mean, sure, there are many steps to it, which is my challenge. I just, I like simple, a few step type projects just because I'm not patient. But um, if I were to just, consciously go into it knowing there are steps to take i have to it's really not that difficult um it's it's really not and it's it's not difficult in any of it it's just there's a lot to pay attention to and you'd think that for me who likes to dive in deep to things i think that it's cheese can be overwhelming and i'm i'm really not saying it's it's really not tough it's it's really is something that's easy to do surprisingly easy to do some of the beginner cheeses or fresh cheeses and such as what kind of cheeses? Yeah, like what are the beginner's fresh cheeses that you would say are not that difficult or someone to start off with? Well, I mean, I like to do feta because it's somewhere in between. It's not too easy. It's not too difficult. And feta is delicious, yes. Then there, there's a lot of soft cheeses that aren't going to be aged. So cheeses that aren't really aged for much time, those ones are a lot easier too. Like what? Mozzarella? Mozzarella is a stretch cheese. So there's easy easy mozzarella recipes out there there's even a 30 minute rest uh 30 really? minute mozzarella recipe that sounds, that sounds i'm questioning that one well it doesn't really take that long but then mozzarella gets more challenging because it's a stretched curd cheese so that you need to deal with the ph strips or ph meter and need to be paying attention to a few different things and it, it, it is a learning curve i haven't made mozzarella so i couldn't tell you how easy it is or isn't but when i do make mozzarella it's going to be the stretched curd a little bit more probably challenging because well, for one, a 30-minute mozzarella is not really en- enough of uh, or any of the lactose really being digested. So I need a little bit more being lactose intolerant. But I, I handle mo- mozzarellas for the most part okay. So I just don't know if I would handle a 30-minute mozzarella. <laughs> yeah, that would – you should try it and let us know. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really want to spend a whole bunch of time on the toilet. So I, I think I'll, <laughs> I'll skip that. That but, would be awesome. But uh, but if I was on the toilet a long time, I could read on my phone about more about cheese making. So maybe it would be a win win situation. I don't know. But or, I mean, or making the, turning lemons into lemonade. You think like spread cheeses are relatively easy to make? Yeah, anything that's not aged is a lot simpler because the beginning stages of making mini cheeses are same. Now there are there's kind of it's not a way to classify cheeses really, but there's. There, there's ones that use microbes to make the cheeses, and then there's those that are just using acid to make the cheese, to coagulate the cheese. And again, coagulation being, you know, the separation of curds and whey, the thickening of the milk. Okay. And the microbes is... Well, the microbes are the, the ones you need starter cultures, similar to yogurt making or, or pretty much yogurt making um, it, for dairy-related things. So... It's it's similar in that regard that you need to introduce bacteria to it with the the simplest cheeses to make, which I cannot think of any of the names of them right off the top of my head because I don't make them, are using an acid such as vinegar. And it's just made with vinegar. It's a, a farmer's cheese would be one. Yeah, I was going to say that sounds really familiar to me. 
it's coagulation. It's the same as the lactic acid bacteria that create, that acidify the milk. It is acidifying it with the, with that instead. So, um, I don't do those because they're really quick cheeses and they, they again, aren't they're They're, they're It's just in for my just, stomach. It's just milk. like, yeah. Drinking milk or eating milk. So for me, those, those don't work. I think that's what I grew up eating too. Is farmer's cheese? Yeah. I mean, I can handle a little bit of farmer's cheese. I'm not, I'm not horribly lactose intolerant, but I'm lactose intolerant enough that I prefer cheeses, cheeses that have at least been aged for a, a week. Well, you also... You, or yogurts. So, I mean, yogurts don't take that long, but as, you know, you kind of see the more you understand about making cheeses, sometimes they're not ripening for that long. So, there, I mean, whereas you have a yogurt... Some of the mesophilic yogurts ripening for 12 plus hours, some of the short cheeses to make take a very short amount of time uh, in the ripening stage before they are coagulated with, with rennet and all the other kinds of things that I'll kind of mention. But it, there, there's, there's a lot of ingredients that go into cheese making and some of those things get confusing. But before we even get into those, one thing that was, was really there, there's a there's one book that's that's interesting. There's a few different books, and and I'll and I'll share some more. But the the cheesemaker cheesemaker's apprentice is one nice book. I like it because there's a lot of interviews with actual cheesemakers and cheese professionals. Uh, it's by Sasha Davies, and it's it's a good book. It's got a lot of good pictures in it. And one thing that stood out to me the first time I was flip before I'd even read the book when I was just flipping through it was talking about the expectations of DIYing things and especially of cheese making, but it was kind of an, it was kind of an interesting way to, to break it down. And so just looking at the aspects of doing anything yourself, be it cheese making, be it fermentation, be it building a house or whatever it is, okay. you know, you have uh, it, the way that, that she was breaking it down was into two ways. It's like you have the diehard fans of the things they want to make. So the people that, that really love something, in this instance, cheese, really love cheese, really love a specific kind of cheese, and they are going to do it themselves because they want to create that cheese themselves. I think that's kind of like you and your yogurts. No. Really? I don't have any. I don't have anything to compare it to. But you think you could purchase it at the store, you still wouldn't want to make it? Well, I, I fell in love with these yogurts through the process, which is the second kind of person, those who are curious about the process. Because I didn't, tr- I had never tried Vili. I had never done any of these kind of oh, things. Okay. It's through the process okay. that I came to this. It wasn't about, I tried Vili and it's like, I want to figure out how to create that exact Vili. Yogurt's maybe not such a great example because it's kind of hard to screw them up for the most part. Or if you screw them up, it's such a short period of time and, and so few steps involved that it's like, oh, I can try that again. But whereas with cheese, if a person's really focused on trying to make a specific kind of cheddar cheese that they've tried before and they're trying to replicate that, what Sasha Davies is saying in, in, in the book, The Cheesemaker's Apprentice, is you know, that, that it might be a little bit more painful in that way. And that's where I get back to the cheese is kind of tough. It's, it's tough to replicate something that maybe you've tasted before. It's not impossible to create cheese that's edible, cheese that's good. But coming at it from the place of a process, it's more about the experience of making it because it's, it's not just and this is going away from the, the what the the book was saying but it's for me cheese making is not so much about at this stage about making cheese that tastes any certain way i think i'm that person which person the first one you want to replicate a taste and then get frustrated or and i think that's why i tend to skip steps or kind of just want to get to the end whereas you're more focusing on the the all of the steps, I'm just kind of like, oh, I just want to get, just want to bake the bread. And then I'm like, oh, I need to let it sit for another eight hours. I'm like, well, I wasn't planning that into my day. So then why do you make the bread at all? Because I want to because I want the, the end product. You want the end product, but why don't you just go buy it? Because you can't always, but, I mean, part of it is making it too, I guess. But I think that's my weakness is I tend to just focus on the end product. And you can't always purchase something um, like it's kind of like making, um, what is that bread called that I made the, the French up uh, the baguette. 
Like, I've had it before, and in France, too, in Paris. It's like, so I have a memory of how it tastes, and I want to make it. But I don't necessarily know here where to go and just buy it. Sure, I can buy the cheap, not real stuff at the store. Um, so I want. I just want the end product. So why, when it didn't turn out like a French baguette? and It was still delicious, though. So why aren't you like repetitively keep trying to make that same bread until you get it just perfect? I made a different kind of bread. Sure. It's just my personality. I think that maybe you're a little bit more of the second group. No. Because you think about the two groups. You have the diehard fans, the people that want to replicate, you know, want to make what they taste. Yeah. Or what they've experienced in in the real world from professionals. I've done it with kefir. What's that? I've tried to remake kefir, like the the few kefirs that I liked from the store. But they don't taste the same. And they you do. acknowledge that they don't. No, but I Even did when for you a while. To make your blueberry flavored kefir. That's, it doesn't taste that's quite the same. It's close to it, though. It's close, but it's not the same. But it's not. Well, yes, but I've tried on numerous occasions. I think you're more lax, like you said with that bread. But I'm just relaxed overall, though. It's 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 one of those things where okay, so go, go so wait, do you think I'm the second? I think you're the second one because you don't you're not so attached to something. I don't see you as being such a huge um, fan of something. If you were such, I don't know. I'm kind of the thing. If I'm such a huge, huge fan of something, I'm probably just going to buy it kind of thing. Whereas like if, if I'm interested in something, I'm probably going to make it. That, I don't know how to that differentiate that exactly. No, it's that, like, I get that. It's like it, it, when even coffee roasting, when I was roasting a lot of coffees, I was trying to perfect my roasting abilities, but with my setups, I mean, well, especially at first when I was just using a popcorn popper or when I got to the stage of, of having a heat gun with the, uh, using a bread okay. mixer to, to mix the, using gadgets to try and do replicate things that I do not have the equipment or the, the, the funding for a roaster, a coffee roaster. Yeah. I didn't, I to invest in a few thousand dollars into a roaster that I would really want wasn't feasible. So I was making do with what I had. I enjoyed the coffee that I roasted for different reasons than I enjoyed some of the the very specific coffees that I fell in love with and I was a huge fan of. I was not trying to replicate those coffees. I wasn't trying to get the green beans of those coffees and then roast them to the same degree. So I think for myself, if I'm really in love with a certain kind of food, it's kind of it's kind of like for me, restaurants. You know, working in restaurants for a long time, you know, I didn't really go out to eat at restaurants that often. But when I did go out to eat, I wanted to go to the nicest restaurants because like for me, like this is where the DIY stuff really comes in. It's like if I go to somewhere that's just kind of mediocre or stuff that I could make at home, for me, that's kind of disappointing if it isn't better than I can make it at home. And you have said that before. Yeah. I mean, it's if it's not. Yeah. I think you and I actually went to eat once at a. A Thai restaurant, maybe. Okay. And it was one of those things where it was like rice and vegetables. <laughs> and I think I remember you saying too, oh, I, I, I've been eating this for the last week. I could have just made this at home. Yeah. Things like that are kind of disappointing. Well, I mean, I, no offense to good Thai restaurants in the United States, but oh, this there's, place wasn't there's been that very great, few though. places in the United States that I've had good, only one place that I've had good Thai food since not being in Thailand. So, uh, but, but, but yeah, I mean, not that I'm making good Thai food at home, but I'm just saying that, that. You know, for something like that, you know, I'm, I make Thai-esque type, Thai-inspired food at home, but I, I don't have access to all the ingredients. So like, I'm not trying to kid myself in saying that I'm, I'm a huge fan of Thai food, which I am, that I can recreate Thai food completely at home. I can yes, do but some you get things different. I can do things maybe more authentic than, um, you know, an American Thai restaurant because they're kind of appealing to the masses as opposed to something specific that I think that's where a lot of my DIY interest comes in too. It's the fact that I can, I can make something that doesn't, uh, uh, or does the, the masses, it would not sell. Okay. So like really, like I've talked about that before, that one is one that I DIY because I can't get access to it. Otherwise that's a rare example because well, I guess it's similar to the, the Thai cooking ingredients and everything like that. Things that I can't get access to or purchase Obviously, I'm going to DIY those. It's not that they're not popular somewhere, but if they're not popular in the area where I live, then it makes it kind of challenging to get to experience those kind of things. So those are not about the process. They're really about the end product. But so the, you're kind of somewhere in between. But, the, but the, well, yeah, I guess. But for myself, going back to the cooking analogy, which I don't know how 
analogous it really is, but it's thinking about going out to a fine dining restaurant, something where, you know, you know, most likely I imagine local ingredients and, you know, like really care seasonal cooking, different things like that. You know, I want to go to a restaurant and appreciate what their, their masterpieces are and, and which I do not have the time to prepare everything for I, the, the, something that's something where specialization does come in handy. Something that, you know, you have multiple uh, chefs in the kitchen preparing food and some of this stuff is prepared, you know, in advance of time and something that I would be spending days potentially getting everything ready to go. For me, that's not what I, how I want to spend my time. I don't go out to fine dining restaurants that often, but when I do, I really appreciate what I get there as opposed to eating out in general. For me, it just doesn't, it doesn't do much for me. So I think that's where I am kind of a little bit. I, I'd say that maybe these are too simple. Okay. So Sasha Davies, I think I'm going to say these are, these are too simple of categories for DIY. DIY is much more complex. The author trying to convey by these two and the cheese making specifically. Well, Well, she was just saying that, you know, adventures in cheese making can be pleasurable or painful depending on your expectations, which that is true. I mean, I, I think that DIYing in itself and why motivations for doing that are so probably more complex. So would you say complex. painful is if you're more so focusing on the end product and pleasurable would be the steps to? No, no. It's it's that cheese is both incredibly simple and difficult. Yeah. I mean, because there are so many different kinds of cheeses. It's Another way to look at it is, you know, uh, which was also in the book referring to a friend that was talking about beer it's easy to make a beer I want to at start home. making beer what's that i'd like to try and make beer well then then listen to what her friend had to say it's easy to make beer at home it's difficult to make good beer at home which i think is true really now it's not impossible to make good beer at home and it's not in it's not even necessarily super hard to make good beer at home but it's the one thing that is easy is making the beer. It's easy to make beer. It's it's easy to make cheese. It's easy to make fermented foods. It's easy to do all these kind of things. But there's there are things that can, can screwed up in some things that are more complex in steps, like cheese making, have more areas to screw things up. You can I make honestly, a cheese that's edible, that's not that that may not be the texture, taste, or quality, but it's a lot it, you know, it's it's, I guess not, it's not impossible, but definitely, I mean, bacteria is definitely more important. Vegetables are safer ferments than cheese, but following a few guidelines. People approach it though. That's what, the, that's what, that's what it's she's kind of like, what about. kind of mentality you go into it. If, if something looks really complicated, but you kind of break it down and it's, you look at something and say, okay, so I need to do this first and this first. It's really not that difficult. It just looks difficult. Um, versus if someone just looks at, the overall requirements, like, oh, this is way over my head. I'm sorry, I'm going to bother. Like, I think sometimes things are more simpler than they look or appear. More simpler. Or, yeah, more simple. Thank you. Um, than they look or appear. Or, um, like, I think people just need to sometimes just give it a chance. Yes. And just not assume. And just that's my weakness. That things, as as Daniela says, things are more simpler than they look. <laughs> well, and I think that's my weakness, too. It's because if I see a recipe that requires... 15 ingredients, I'm just not even going to really bother. I'm just like, oh, I don't 15 probably... ingredients. 15 ingredients is too much for you? Yeah, I know. It's, it's sad. But it's like, well, well you... I probably don't have half of them. So it's like, I'm not going to destroy and get them. And I probably am going to mess it up anyway. So I'm just going to look for something simpler. That's why I like sourdough making. It's very simple. Not too many ingredients? No. And you got the microbes. You don't even have to go get yeast? <laughs> exactly. I mean, sure, there's still a lot. It, it could get comp complex if you choose to i mean it's kind of like you don't do a stone or steam correct but i'm talking about more so that the sourdough starter itself i mean you could be as complicated with as you'd like to or play around with all of the different flowers and um, flour to water ratio i mean so it's it's kind of it's flexible it's hard to i feel like it's hard to screw up but i'd say that also... you screwed up some sourdough bread really too much salt, kind of flat. I did make one one loaf that had too much salt, but I didn't even notice the salt because it was so good. I accidentally added a tablespoon versus a teaspoon, but yes, that's that's a big difference. I, I, it was did, three I didn't even 
Huh? I thought it was three tablespoons. No, no, okay. no. It was one. But no, I didn't even notice the salt. That's what's interesting. I think when you tried that was the first thing you said. It's like, oh, this is salty. I'm like, really? And I even tried it afterwards and I didn't taste the salt. But I looked at the recipe. I'm like, oh, I definitely ask for a teaspoon, not for a tablespoon. But honestly, if I were to make it again, I think I would go with a tablespoon. No, you would not. <laughs> it's like even if you don't taste it, you can feel it on the tongue. Oh, you can't. It's so good. Anyway, let's... It's interesting, though, to think, I think. It's like, so understanding the motivations behind doing some of these things is is important. With cheese, I'd say it's important. And probably, depending on a person, if they, if, if they like fermenting things and they're not vegan and unwilling to eat dairy or different things like that, then... Cheese is definitely something that's interesting. And if a person's made a lot of kinds of all kinds of different ferments, cheese is something that's intriguing, but it's kind of one of those things where it's like, yeah, it's intriguing, but what do you, what does a person really want out of it? Fermenting vegetables. I think it's easy to replicate or make a better product than most things. What's that? I feel like knowledge. Don't we all just really kind of want to learn when we do these things? Sure, some things are more necessary than and others. And that's, that's where it comes down to. I think a person needs to, for, for, for something like, again, like I was just trying to say, is that sauerkraut is something that people can easily replicate or potentially make better than, or at least to someone's liking more so than, than what's available commercially at a lot of places. Sure, there's some better sauerkrauts that people can I take as examples. But it's something that's simple and people's tastes can be, you know, drastically different sometimes people want uh, saltier they want a less salty they want uh, seasonings that they don't want any spices or anything in their in their sauerkrauts or fermented vegetables in general or kimchi or otherwise but it's one of those things that's pretty darn simple that anyone can do at home and and really sauerkraut is one of those things that makes sense to do at home i think it does unless someone has a product that they really love and then it would take some time to replicate that whereas cheese i feel it People that are interested in making cheese, or at least for myself being interested in making cheese, that interest came from an, an intrigue and liking of cheese. Just like coffee roasting came from an intrigue and liking of coffee. And for me, it really is about the knowledge side of things. So that's why, even though I'm screwing things up sometimes and I don't get what I expected or it doesn't turn out at all, for me, that's okay. Because it is about the knowledge. It's like, it's it's what you're talking about. But if... If anyone's listening to this and really loves a certain kind of cheese and wants to replicate that cheese, just be prepared for a learning curve because there is one. And if a person can relax a little bit on expectations, then there's definitely the the possibility of, of having enjoyable and at least edible cheeses in the process of m- mastering. But I, I think, I think cheese is one of those things that's tough unless a person is making it regularly every day or, or, or often, it's going to be hard to master a lot of these techniques of, of cheese making, let alone some of the equipment is a lot easier if it's of a higher quality or whatnot. So a few things about cheese that I found interesting, um, which I just kind of looking at something about cheese, but, um, I think United States is, uh, we make the most cheese. However, we most don't cheese. What we produce in the world. The, yes. However, we don't consume most of it. We're not the top consumer. I think France and Greece might be the, the, the top two. Yeah. But are we talking per capita or what, how is the measurement? I don't know how the measurement is. I think per person. Sure. I mean, there's like per pound per person. Sure. There's, there's a lot more people in the United States than there. Yeah. But we don't consume. Oh, you would think, oh, you mean like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense too. So it depends on how they're, if they're, they're talking about the total amount of cheese that's produced is, would make sense that there'd be the most in the United States. It's one of the largest oh, cheese guess, producing yeah, countries. Sense. That's true. Right? But I, it also makes sense that we don't culturally eat as much cheese as some of those other places per person, because but we, it would be impossible so for out. them to make as much cheese as is possible in the United States. Oh, that makes sense. So that's not as that interesting. I was like, huh, that, that's kind of funny. So, so what, what, I would wonder what are the statistics are between the between North America and Europe. Which one makes more? Oh, cheese, huh? That's good. I don't know. I didn't look into that. I was just, this just came across as I was looking at something about cheese, but um, 
but then you kind of killed it for me because I was really Sorry. thinking it was interesting. I was like, oh, that's funny. No, I just, I don't, I don't, I don't have any answers. I, I honestly just... didn't realize that France consumed so much cheese. Is that silly? Is yeah, that that's something really that, silly. Uh, wine and cheese, I guess that makes sense. No, it's not wine and cheese. It's that they have a very strong tradition of cheese making in France. I guess. I just never thought of, I don't know why. I just was like. Yes, that's crazy. France crazy. is not my top, but. So you didn't try a lot of cheese when you were in France back in college? I did have a baguette with cheese. Just that that's it. That was a whole sandwich. I'm not oh. sure how traditional so that is. So that is. kind of like a grilled cheese sandwich? No, it wasn't even really grilled. It was a heart. It was just kind of like a dry sandwich. So no, you really didn't try any artisanal cheeses in France? No, no. You're missing out, I assume. I haven't tried cheese in France I'm sure either. I did, yeah. No, this was by no means a like a specialty place. I think it was just some small place selling sandwiches. And don't know why I decided to have cheese and bread, but... The other thing you can think about, thinking of France, is the mimolette. Remember that cheese? That's yes. Being... Do you have an update? No. <laughs> Nothing new. Still don't know what's going on with that. Still kind of a, a shady, shady topic. Not really much coverage, so I don't really know what's going on with that. So, speaking of cheese, are you going to... Yes, we are speaking of cheese. <laughs> are you going to go segue? give us a basic um, rundown as to what is required or... Yeah, well, okay. First, though, I really want to know, do cheese, do mice really like cheese? Um, I don't think so. You don't think so? I asked you if you'd look it up. I mean, did you <laughs> did you look it up? Well, it was really hard to find anything specific on that. Um, I mean, it's, like, there was, I guess, you, a study. I mean, I'm talking about, like, if... A, well, I don't think so. And this is based on... No, what I'm, ta- was... what I'm talking about is the image of a cartoon mouse and cheese always no, being I know. together and synonymous. I know, but I'm saying that maybe... I don't know. Is that an international thing? So for some of the international listeners, is that is that synonymous with what, like, you see in cartoons in other countries? Or is yeah, it a, an true. American thing you see mouse with cheese no i think that's very um across the board but i think don't some people put cheese in mouse traps well that's so funny because um when i was looking this up um (laughs) people were asking like you know um what kind of cheese should i put in my mouse trap and and someone was like you should put peanut butter um but uh no i i think so there's not that much information that i was able to find on it but there was a study i guess done i I think it was in UK. I can't remember right now. And this was in 2006 that um, they, they did a study to see if um, mice really like cheese. And and it, it appears that they don't. They actually like, um, they have a sweet tooth. They like sugar. So um, they would much pre- rather prefer to eat like grains or um, even peanut butter is one of them. You know, it's like um, sweets. So, or a soft unripened cheese that would be sweeter. Or do they just not like dairy? Um, no, they actually, well, maybe, as so I don't know about that specifically, but they did say that that actually a smellier cheese would turn them off. Really? So I thought it, they like trash. I mean, so that's seems, what, or is that rats? Do rats like cheese? I'm sure rats like everything. Ratatouille, the movie, it seemed like he liked cheese. Well, and I think that's the misconception. I think that's, um, like there really wasn't too much information as to like what made this be the like the the thing like mice like cheese um there There has to be somewhere there was a there well there was a theory that they don't know how true it is obviously it's a theory but that maybe a long time ago people um when they would store their grains and stuff they would have cheese around the grains and maybe the mice would want to get to the grains and they eat the cheese or um or tunnel through the cheese yeah and so that was one of the theories but i mean they really they don't really know why that came about and some people say that the cartoons kind of made that even a bigger uh, well, yeah, i like thought a, that's i thought maybe that's where it started that's was kinda, the cartoons. well they say it's kind of like that pretty romantic it, it kind of made the whole mice and cheese image pretty and so it kind of tom and jerry made yeah well i don't know if it's tom and jerry but yeah so it's so it seems that it's really just maybe a myth and it's not true however it's used in a lot of cartoons so people just assume mice like cheese and i mean i think they would eat cheese they kind i mean but i don't it's not their preference so they Um, would eat it if they were starving probably yeah 
unless it was really stinky. Yeah, but the study that was conducted, I think it was in UK in 2006. What kind of cheese did they use? I don't know. They did they use they a broad they range of really cheeses? They didn't really specifically say what cheeses, but they said that mice definitely did not want to eat the cheese. So, um, But what if it was just a really bad cheese? Like, what if... What if these mice just were, what if, what if they were trying to give them like a, a Velveeta or, or some like pa- a processed cheese? And, I doubt they would do this in a study. They probably would use real cheese. What if they didn't have much funding for their study and they had to use a really cheap cheese? Oh, well, then what if? I don't know. But stinky, so they were using some stinky cheeses, so they were probably using something. Well, I think they did different. So they um, did do different cheeses. Yeah. I, and I, it, it's made it, they made it sound like. The stinkier definitely turn them off. I just uh, maybe that's rats. Maybe there's a difference with maybe it's not just a rodent thing in general. I mean, maybe rats eat stinky. I don't know. I just think of them being around trash and different stuff and searching for food. But I guess just because they're around but trash I mean, really, doesn't mean. If you think about any time mice eating cheese, really, you're you're. I'm assuming this is how my memory is. It's really from cartoons. That's well, all yeah, I but have. Even when so I see like rats in the real world, I, I don't know if I've ever really seen yeah, a, a rat instead of a pet store. But if I lived in a major city that had so you, you're, rats in the sewers, assuming. so sewers and, and trash bins. Well, but that's different. That's not cheese. That's just But anything. that's smelly. That's so you think that they like smelly cheese? Well, they might. Rats. We're, we're going to have to follow up on this. We're going to have to do some more research. I have good luck. There really wasn't that much about mice and cheese. Besides, a lot of people point out it's a myth and it's not true. And then a lot of people asking, did mice really like cheese? And and interestingly, it's funny because some people are like, yeah, they do like cheese, but you should really use peanut butter if you're trying to catch them. And you know, I'm like, well, then why not use cheese if they like Peanut it? butter infused cheese. Would they like that? Probably. Okay. Well, hey, we'll have to follow up a little bit more on that one. That, that, one, that one's still perplexing. I don't think they like cheese. They don't like cheese, but why don't they like stinky cheese? Do they not like stinky things in general? They like they like sweet things. Sweet things. Yes. They have a sweet tooth. Sweet things or probably, I'm assuming, alcoholic things. Like if there's like a, no. a rotting apple, they probably like that. Really? Why? Why do you say that? Because a lot of animals seem to, scavenging animals seem to like alcoholic foods just like humans do. I don't think so. Once Once that apple starts fermenting into alcohol and then they get a little drunk and running around would the, would the drunk mouse eat the cheese maybe because so you it give would them be... something they like like fermented apple rotting apple maybe a little bit alcoholic and then do this study over again and we'll see what what results why we get. don't you have get some mice and do your test even though this one is specific about mice i don't I don't know. I don't know if I want to get into whole mice studies and. You don't support that? No, it's not that I don't support it. It's just I don't. It, but this this one does make sense. Using mice for a mice mouse study makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you could just have a mouse, give it a grain, some kind of a. It needs to be in a berry, maze too, I'm assuming. And then give it cheese next to it and see which one it goes for. It'd be a simple study. Before we go any farther down this rabbit hole or mouse hole or however you'd have to have to say it uh getting a little bit more back to cheese and so as we're talking actually it's not as much cheese basics it's more along the lines of a few fundamentals to consider or a few things to consider when making cheese especially for someone that's never made cheese at all so would this be like more like planning to make cheese kind of things to have in mind beforehand yeah that's not a bad way to put it it's it's kind of yeah like things if it's a person that's looking for a way to to get into cheese making or considering, well, is it worth it for me to get into cheese making? Okay. Some different things to consider. Oh, and and they are? Well, some of those things that I like to think about first are, well, upfront cost. It doesn't have to be very expensive to make cheese at home, but certain cheeses will co- require more investment. So like start others. out with something, a cheese type that doesn't require a lot of tools to, for one, make sure that one enjoys doing it, um, that they can get a hang of it and that they're still interested and potentially then kind of at, at that point decide to maybe get additional things. Yeah. I mean, I kind of think that's the way with a lot of DIY stuff, unless a person is really just set on starting a new hobby. I don't know. I think you'd be surprised. I think you're one of those people actually <laughs> that likes to just buy everything you think you'll need and then find out that, oh, I'm not so interested, but that could just be my perception. 
no, it's not so much that I'm not interested in things or, or it's, it's more that I, I do things and I get really into it and then I get really interested in something else. And then I usually come around, especially if I have the utensils, then I usually come around at some point that is true. later on. I will give you that. So, so it's more of, so just quickly, does this mean you're going to start drinking coffee soon? No, I'm not going to, I'm not <laughs> going to start drinking any caffeine anytime soon, but uh, I do still like the smell and I do enjoy roasting it a little bit as well. But with, with cheese, it's the cost up front doesn't again have to be very much. And so when looking at different books or recipes online or anything, that's one of the key things to look at is like, okay, well, do you want to invest much money or do you not? And most of the books out there are going to start out with things that really don't take much equipment. So that's a good place to start is starting with things that you probably already have in the kitchen. And some of the things that would limit it is just again, with how much milk is a person using to to make their cheese. If you're just doing a gallon of milk, most people have a stock pot that will fit a gallon of milk and they can heat that and try and keep it at a consistent temperature. And there's different recommendations on how to keep milk at a consistent temperature, especially when you're dealing with a smaller amount of milk, it's a little bit tougher, but because it doesn't produce that much cheese. Well, it's, well, it's tougher to keep maintain a temperature with smaller amounts of milk just because a smaller amount of milk is quicker to fluctuate in high, go higher, go high, lower. Oh, yeah, and that, that kind of sense. stuff is, in, is is important. But so equipment is is something to consider. So a stock pot is something, a, a vat, a cheese vat would be a stock pot. And not anything nonstick, not Teflon based or anything like that, because that those things scratch and all the time. And or if there's any scratches or micro scratches in that, then that's a place that can harbor bacteria, which we want to keep as sanitized as possible. That's the other thing that really, and I'll get back to equipment, but sanitization, that's something else that is important with cheese and something that I probably, that's where I experience some of my issues with cheese is that I, for most of my fermentation can get away with cleanliness, not sterilization. So in the sense of I can use, I can use regular good dish soap and wash things well when I'm fermenting vegetables or otherwise, they don't need to be sterilized, uh, as they would in canning or anything. They don't need to be boiled or they don't need to use a sterilizing solution to, to get all bacteria off of there because the native bacteria in the fermentation process are going to Eliminate be strong enough. It's we're creating an environment in vegetable fermentation. We're creating an environment that is only good for those things in cheese fermentation as dairy fermentation. It's an environment that many different kinds of bacteria could become a part of. And in that beginning stage, it's important to get the right bacteria starting out because otherwise, especially when you're aging a cheese, it's a lot. If you have the wrong bacteria at the very beginning, you're just going to encourage it as you're letting it sit. Yeah. And it's not always necessarily possible to tell that those bacteria are in it. So are you saying with cheese making, you might want to be more um, strict with cleanliness and Yeah. To a certain extent, I don't, it's not absolutely necessary to go so far as, well, some cheesemakers would disagree, but it's not absolutely necessary to go with a sterilizing solution, like a, a food grade sterilizing solution to, to, to Wait. wipe out anything and clean out. But it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt, definitely. And it's not that expensive an investment to, you know, buy a ten dollar bottle of, of, of something and then follow the directions on how to how to sanitize things. On a really hot cycle in a dishwasher will work, boiling utensils, any utensils that are being used. Those are things that I've honestly not really done, especially when I'm working with something like feta, which maybe I've just been lucky so far. Or it doesn't matter as much maybe for the 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 really short ferments as long as they're being eaten fresh and relatively soon. But yeah, sanitization is definitely one of those things that's a little different for me. It's a similar to how it is with with beer making for a lot of it. It's that, you know, very strict guidelines for how to keep things sanitized because again, the environments I just don't think are as perfectly suited for the good bacteria and not the bad bacteria. I feel like that's one of those topics that really um it's going to be kind of a personal decision if someone hasn't been as strict, but they've been successful, then they'll probably say, well, you don't have to be that clean. But someone who's, you know, been so strict with cleanliness from the very beginning is probably going to say um, otherwise. So it's just... And it, I am uh, going to follow up with this at a later date way in the future in regard to I'm going to try sanitizing and doing that because I have had some not so good luck with 
aging the one mold. specific cheese on on mold and uh it's it's a blog post i i posted a picture of it it's a it's a nice blue mold on it that um you know didn't clean off and kind of got in and just t- tainted the flavor may have been something simple that i had done wrong may not have been like sanitization reasons um you know i mean i w- i was keeping things clean but i wasn't using any cleaner and so i'll try I'll, i'm going to i'm going to compare i mean i'll try both ways multiple different times in the sense of you know, you I'll gonna... continue to try things without using sterilizing stuff, and I will try times with sterilizing stuff. Um, it just just to kind of like see over the next you know few months as I continue my adventure into cheese making is, you know, do I? And it's not a uh, evidence based or scientific kind of experiment Wait, uh, here. It's I mean... just me looking at at different ways. What's my personal experience? And you know, the more a person makes cheese in their home. And I don't know if on a home scale, this is much of an issue. It's more in, 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 in uh, cheese making, like everyday kind of production. There's bacteriophages that can attack the bacteria. They're little viruses of sorts that are attacking the bacteria. That is bad. It doesn't allow the bacteria to culture the, and ripen the milk as it would. And it likes whey and a few other things in the dairy process. So if there's a lot of whey in a place, these viruses are normally going to be attracted and they can, you know, build up in an environment where this is made. And so that can be a downside to it too. It seems like there's a lot more challenges or, or, or things to consider when it comes to cheese making. And that's where it comes back to. It's like cheese making can be tough, but these are the kind of things that again, aren't really much of a, that's stepping a little bit too far into an advanced things. If you're just making your first cheeses, you're not going to have to worry about bacteriophages attacking your your I bacteria. Think boiling would work. I mean, yeah, boiling is going to be a good way to boil things for at least ten. It just 15 seems like minutes. to me that seems like the most natural way. Um, only because I would imagine a hundred years ago, um, when cheese was being made, I mean, they didn't really have the the solution. So I, I'm guessing maybe they boil things. That is something. That's... You know what I mean? And I'm sure people have died from you know, diseases and bacteria and cheese too. So we don't know that, but so I, I usually like to boil things anyway. That's well, my... and I'm looking more at, I mean, sure there is, there is the risk of certain, I mean, I, I would say use, use the amount of salt in a cheese that it recommends not using less just because you're trying to cut down on, on salt. It's a little bit more serious potential for just pathogenic it's... bacteria to get involved in, in a, a cheese that's being aged and doesn't have enough salt in it. So, I mean, things like following recipes when starting out is probably a good idea and not cutting down on salt because salt is something that's going to help against botulism and other, other deadly kind of things. But most of these things aren't necessarily deadly. It's more of, is the cheese going to turn out or is it not? Or, you know, not as deadly as botulism, but maybe make a person really sick. So there, there are things to be, not to be afraid of in making cheese but it's just really read up this is some cheese making is something to read a little bit about the fresh cheeses those acidified cheeses and different things like that those i mean i'm sure things could go wrong especially if you had tainted milk to begin with but it's rather relatively it's going to work i mean it's it's or it's going to work or it's not going to taste right and it's not going to work but a lot of these things are more of issues of it's just not going to turn out the way that a person wants it to so maybe like don't cut uh don't like Cut corners. Yeah, following. and I think that's probably where my part of like cheese making is tough is because, well, okay, I, I like to be, be creative and try different things and experiment, which is totally a part of making cheese as well, but the fundamentals are important. Okay. And we're not really going over the fundamentals today. We might do that in a future podcast, but just these are just some like initial thoughts to think about. And so some of the other things like with equipment are in regard to the... Um, you know, you're going to need some muslin and butter muslin. So you might need to go find or special order that if you don't have any kind of cheese making supply store in town and you're going to need to get cultures as well. So beyond equipment, just the supplies, you're going to need to get a powdered direct set starter culture. And again, we've gone over that before with yogurts talking about heirloom yogurts versus direct set yogurts, these direct set powders for cheese making. There's hundreds of them, I'm sure of blends and they, are specific isolated bacteria that have been put into these blends to to recreate specific styles of cheese. And some of these different direct set powders will have multiple styles. Like it might be, you know, for a a Gouda and a cheddar or, you know, multiples. It it might work for any of those, or sometimes they're very specific too. This is a, a specific kind of style of cheddar cheese. But most of them will have a few that they'll cover. But you'll need to look at those, decide which one. Usually following a recipe, they'll tell you and exactly what kind. 
things that we'd need are, I'm assuming, not that expensive? No, they're not too expensive. I mean, it is definitely a continual cost of of making cheese. And I'm really looking into other alternative ways of beside these direct set starter cultures, similar to how heirloom yogurts, you don't have to keep purchasing new starter cultures or buying new yogurt from the store if you use an heirloom culture, because then it will, you know, perpetuate the same way. I mean, the, they will used to use the whey from the previous batch of cheese or some part of that cheese. And so they, they'd pass it forward and not use a direct set before there is microbiologists to isolate these bacteria. So there's ways of doing this before that time. And, you know, a lot of cheese making today is very reliant on these direct set starter cultures, which are only produced by a few different places in the world. And so, you know, I'm just kind of curious as, as a home cheese maker or wannabe cheese maker, I guess maybe is more of where I stand. I, I, you know, I, I like making it, but I wouldn't call myself really a cheese maker yet. It's, it's that I'd be curious about, look, looking into alternative ways of doing that. Can I use some of my heirloom yogurts? Will the bacteria in those, if I experiment with those and treat those right, would they work in the process of, of making uh, so cheese. maybe make a few cheeses and then try experimenting. Yeah, I think that's that's back to where, for me, cheese is tough because learn the fundamentals first, then experiment. So that's that's kind of where I'm at. And when you get to the direct set starter cultures, it's very similar. If you listen back to any of our talks about yogurts, is with direct set starter cultures, you're going to have mesophilic starter cultures and thermophilic starter cultures. So you're going to have ones that are heat loving, the thermophilic are going to have those warmer temperatures. The milk is going to be cultured at a higher temperature and mesophilic. It's going to be a little bit closer to room temperature or usually in cheese making a little above room temperature. So this is really just deciding how, how much you have to warm up the milk. Yeah. And th- those are decided by, again, when you're just starting out learning the fundamentals, probably just follow the recipe and see what it says. You know, because different recipes, they'll tell you if it's a mesophilic or a thermophilic or different things like that. But just understanding that, you know, part of cheesemaking, unless you're lucky enough to have a local cheesemaking supply store, you're going to have to order a few things online. It's a little different than, you know, making a simple yogurt using store-bought yogurt or, or, or making vegetables, ferments, or, you know, any other kinds of even some grains or different such. It's like it's you, you're going to have to order a few things online or find a specialty store to get these things from. And then after you have the starter cultures, after you have a pot, after you, you know, have the milk, other things they consider with the milk is that the cow's milk, the, the sheep's milk or the goat's milk. Most people, home cheese makers are probably going to have easiest access to cow's milk. Or maybe just start out with cow's milk. Well, it's totally possible. I mean, from what I understand, I have not used sheep's milk and I don't have ready access to sheep's milk, but sheep's milk has, will yield a lot more, a lot more cheese per gallon of milk yeah. as opposed to cow's milk and it has a higher fat content more protein it has it just has more soluble or more solids than than cow's milk and some people say that you know really working with sheep's milk is a lot easier than working with cow's milk because moisture content is an important aspect of cheese making which a person doesn't need to know up front just following a recipe but some of these things realize that this is, I think, something important is realize that the steps in the recipes before understanding the fundamentals, you know, that's where I kind of like to dive in a little deeper and understand a little bit more before I start. But when I first started with cheese making, I didn't spend as much time understanding many of the fundamentals like moisture and about curds and knitting together and all those different things. And so I kind of just would halfway, I'd follow the directions fully, but I didn't You weren't really aware what you were doing and why. I wasn't aware of what I was doing and so would make mistakes that didn't necessarily destroy the cheese because I wasn't making really difficult cheeses. But it now that I look back, it's like, oh, I was making some mistakes. Because the simple process of making cheese is pretty much the same for most of these cheeses in the sense of warm up the milk, inoculate it with bacteria, with the culture that directs that culture and then coagulate the milk and you use rennet for that. And that's another ingredient that you're probably going to have to order or find in a specialty shop. And rennet is traditionally from the, the stomach of a calf. It's what the unweaned calf is using to curdle the milk in its own stomach. And so we use that from a slaughtered calf in order to 
It sounds so terrible. Well, it is and it's not. I mean, it's it, in dairying in general. I mean, I don't know if we've gone over this before, but I mean, in, in consuming dairy, it's automatically a part of the slaughter of calves to a certain extent because calves are born because, okay, you know, stepping back, I mean, yes, cows the cow has to that be has to be impregnated. Which was news to me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, how much just I like a human mother has to be impregnated in order to get breast milk. The same happens with utter milk, the cow breast milk. They have to be impregnated and they have to be continually impregnated over time in order to keep that production up. It doesn't just last forever. Yeah, it's kind of a, a terrible story. Well, the, just for me. Well, that of... actually does make me wonder, though. I mean, because that's, I guess I always thought that, say, a wet nurse... Are you familiar with wet nurses? Yeah. Back in the day, like the ones that would nurse. If you're constantly just milking. The, I, thought the... if, I thought if a human mother was, or a human woman that had given birth continued milking, I thought that they would never be able to stop. But I guess maybe it's different maybe, with cows or maybe production isn't as high. Or maybe over time, it just kind of stops. Maybe maybe we should look this up and get back to it instead of just keep saying maybe. But I wonder if for a cow, it's kind of, it just, they have milk longer than they otherwise would if we keep milking them, but not ongoing you know yeah forever. i wonder i'm gonna have to look well, up yeah, i'm gonna I do know. more research we'll on, on wet nurses because i do know in the dairying process you do need to impregnate them more often and that could have been the hybridization of getting these cows that have a high production of, of milk or other animals that have a high production of milk yeah we should look that up we should just look up how long a cow produces milk before it runs out if we were to not get yeah or or when the production starts going down hence when they will most likely be impregnated again but so you have these impregnated cows that give birth to calves and some of those calves will then replace their mothers because roughly 50% of them are going to be female. Some of them will replace their mothers down the road and, you know, grow up and be dairy cows themselves. But a lot of them are going to be male and male. You only need so many for semen for the female to impregnate the female cows. And I, I know yes, I'm not, I, know. I should be using bull and, and I don't know, heifer or, or however the terminology would be, but simplifying it a little um, you know, so a lot of them are going to be male and they're not the same as beef cattle. They're not the same as, as ones used for meat. Well, they can be used for meat when grown up as adults, as you know, they could be used as ground beef or different things like that. In the most part, especially in industrialized dairy, there's not really a whole lot to do with them besides sell them as to be able to make any kind of profit from them, sell them as uh, veal. So once they're slaughtered, yes, it's it, the thank benefit. You for... The benefit of using the rennet derived from that is that you know it's using more parts of the the calf and it's not being being wasted or whatnot since it was sacrificed. Yeah, I wonder how vegetarians feel about this when they eat cheese. I don't know. It isn't. I think it's an important thing to understand about it, it, if a person. And I mean, maybe that, that I think a lot of vegans are aware of this, and that's why they choose not to. Not only is it that they don't drink milk because they don't want to put animals to work. I'm not a vegan expert by any means, but also it may be because it's intrinsically tied with the veal production and consumption. And it's just, it's just a part of the process. And it's, it has been since farming has been around. I mean, there's, you got to keep these cows impregnated and they're going to have baby cows, calves that are going to most likely be slaughtered because otherwise feeding animals that aren't going to be producing anything, it's kind of hard on a farm. Yeah. Because it's expensive to feed a, a big cow. Oh, I know. And it's just the logistics of uh, and the the brutality of the real world. It is. It's it's tough. Yeah, it is. I mean, and so uh way to kill the mood. Yeah, I mean, so if a person is vegetarian for dietary reasons and not ethical reasons, then eating cheese isn't as much of an issue. Um, you know, but at that point they can use vegetable rennets which are derived from microbes that create an enzyme that's similar because rennet again i don't know if we really got into that rennet is a coagulant it's what coagulates it's what separates the curds and the whey little miss Mosfet sat on her tuffet eating her curds and whey that stuff so that's what the curds are what I make the no cheese i have no idea what you just said the nursery rhyme because you're from a different country probably yeah no <laughs> little miss Mosfet, look it up and it's a little nursery rhyme but I, I I know as a kid, I didn't know what curds and whey were. I'm sure at one point kids knew what curds and whey were because yep. they were more intrinsically involved in the process of where food came from. 
now it's relearning all of this stuff. Sadly. As a, as a future generation. But these, this coagulant, the enzymes in that can be produced otherwise. They don't have to be animal rennet. I like to use animal rennet because any other uh, of the, the home hobby available rennets are going to create a bitter flavor if aged for very long, you know, six, seven months, anything more than that. I haven't experienced this myself and I would still like to practice using some. You can also use uh, from stinging nettle or thistles or otherwise. You can you can derive rennet, the, en- the enzymes needed for that by just putting that into the milk as well in the same place as rennet and that will that will create something as well so those that's kind of on a a different topic but that is i guess that this is something to consider though if you're going to make cheese understanding do you want to use animal rennet or vegetarian rennet and understanding vegetarian vegetable rennet is kind of two words it's microbial rennet it's it's derived but it's oftentimes referred to as vegetable or vegetarian rennet understanding the differences between those and even when there are differences, what maybe the, maybe it's not so sad to get the animal <laughs> rented as, as is thought because if you're drinking milk, it's seems at least to me a little hypocritical because I thought it too. I was like, I don't want to use calf. I don't want to be promoting the slaughter of, I mean, I, I feel is okay, I guess, but it's not something that I crave or, you know, really support totally. But I was like, oh wait, I guess I do support it because mm-hmm. I drink milk. Well, there's probably so much that we don't know there's so much in the background that you know it's kind of just not something people talk about well i mean who would have thought that you needed something from a stomach of a little calf to produce cheese really yeah and i mean it's it's fascinating stuff i mean because the traditional way of doing that is drying the 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 fourth chamber of the stomach salting it and then using that as that's that's where you get the the rennet you preserve it that way and then add the rennet, that protolytic enzyme into the into the, the milk. And so I'm really fascinated at looking more at old school ways of how cheese was made in the past. And so I'm hoping to get into more of that and looking more at the science side of things. And I guess we really didn't even cover that much about the key fundamentals of, of cheese making, but... Because there's not that much to it, right? Oh yeah, because it's easy. <laughs> and it is. I, really, I think the best way to learn this kind of stuff. And we're going to cover cheese again in future episodes, but a really nice way to, to learn some of this stuff is just to find a recipe online or better yet, check out some of the books at your library, or there's an Amazon link in the show notes at firmup.com slash podcast slash 21. And look at some of those books, find one that you really like. I like the Sasha Davies book, the, the cheesemaker's apprentice. It's got a lot of like interviews with cheesemakers. It's got a lot of easy, simple enough recipes and goes into enough detail that someone can feel confident doing what they're doing. I, it's not the first book that I used. I kind of look, used uh, Ricky Carroll's cheese book or the artisan cheese making book. Does this uh, again, book have a lot of pictures and step-by-step? This one does have a lot of pictures and like step-by-step. The, um, the artisan cheese making book or whichever title has that in it. I don't have it right off the top of my head, what the title of that book is. That one has a lot of pretty photos, but it's more in the cookbook type of sense. Whereas the Cheesemaker's Apprentice is, has a lot of step-by-step photos or at least, at least, at least more of the, of the step-by-step, which I think is important for starting out is to kind of see what the different stages look like. I think ideally is video. I haven't spent a lot of time looking on video for YouTube videos about cheese making, but that'd be another place to look is to go on YouTube to, to really understand more of more of the steps that are involved. Just realize that you're going to need certain equipment. You're going to need certain ingredients that are not necessarily readily available. The equipment you can get by with store-bought stuff that you can just get regular kitchen utensils. And patience. Patience. Depending what kind of cheese you're making. Yeah. If you're going to a- start aging cheeses, you're going to need other, and you're going to need a controlled environment for, for that and, and be able to measure things and, and cheese press, cheese press. Possibly there's a lot of cheeses that you can get by without using a cheese press whatsoever. Oh. Um, and even a couple aged cheeses that you can do that don't require a press. Or if you're not even using a press, you can use weights. So don't think that you have to invest a lot of money up front in order to be able to make this happen. Like a cheese press, it's possible to make them. There's DIY projects online for making them out of wood. And then it's just understanding how the, the pressure, uh, how the, how the pressure translates when you're hanging a weight from it 
and just getting that evened out or purchase them at different price ranges. But just remember that you can also use like a an empty gallon jug of water of or water or yeah fill up a milk carton with or a milk jug with water and then you have a a weight up to i think that's like about eight pounds so and a lot of cheeses don't need a whole lot more than that so there's there's a lot of ways to get by doing these things because again cheese has been made for a long time and not always with such specialized equipment so keep that in mind but just realize that equipment you can probably get the stuff at the store until you really get deep into it if you're not going to be aging cheeses then there's a, a lot of simpler or quicker cheeses, even like, you know, up to a month, you might get away with it, but then there's ingredients. And so you're probably gonna have to get those at a specialty store. So cheese is a little bit more specialized than some of the other ferments out there. But again, there's plenty of links in the, in the show notes and we'll follow up with a few things about wet nurses and otherwise next wet time, nurses. or if you know anything about the, 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 process of either human milk and wet nurses or dairy milk or dairy cows and and how long they can go without having to be impregnated and get in touch with us at podcast at firmup.com or find us on twitter at firmup facebook at firmup pinterest at firmup google plus search for us on firmup because i can't give you that link off the top of my head and uh look forward to talking Talking at you again next week. (laughs) Firm up.